You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 194, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature, Twelve Lectures, translated by Johanna Kallis. This is Lecture 11, given in Dornach on the 14th of December, 1919. In what I intend to say today, I shall refer to some extent, in a more general way, to what I spoke about yesterday and the day before. From those two previous lectures, you will have gathered that spiritual science, in the sense referred to here, is to be born from the most profound and earnest requirements of human evolution in our time and in the near future. I have often mentioned that we are here dealing not with those ideals which stem from subjectivity, but with those which may be gleaned from the spiritual history of human evolution. One can most definitely glean from this spiritual history of human evolution that the science of initiation, the science which derives its knowledge from beyond the threshold to the spiritual world, is most urgently needed for the further evolution of humanity. The powers representing what comes from the past are those which object to everything that can possibly be of value for a true knowledge of the spiritual world. It is such objections from those individuals in whom outdated powers live which must be overcome. The claim that relearning and rethinking regarding the most important affairs of human evolution is needed must be thoroughly and earnestly comprehended. So I do beg you to work toward overcoming anything that might tend toward a sectarian attitude, such as is still somewhat rampant within the soul of anthroposophy, and truly to see how significant anthroposophical spiritual science is for the world and for humanity. Humanity is today still a long way from awakening from that sleep in which it became enveloped by the developments, I have already described certain aspects to you, commencing round about the middle of the 15th century. Everything incorporated into humanity at that time, external science with its great triumphs, the materialistic concept of universal laws, and the erroneous social ideas appearing so obviously as a result, All these things which have enshrouded humanity in sleep are still mightily at work. No fruitful progress will be possible until humanity has been shaken awake. Let us not forget that knowledge of the Spirit has mighty enemies in all those who, above all, want to continue thinking along their habitual lines out of sheer complacency. It would be wrong to assume that the more such enmity and opposition stemming from those quarters comes to the fore, the more will spiritual science become known, 
so that surely there is no need to bother about such obstacles. Well, ignoring such opposition might be one way of looking at the matter. But it would be the wrong way of tackling things. After all, if noxious pests attack us, we do not ignore them. We seek to rid ourselves of them, and this cannot always be done in a gentle way. But, of course, every case is different and must be treated as such. These things must be understood on the basis of what is necessary today. From this point of view, we should be especially pleased if in these increasingly difficult times there are still individuals who have the will needed to espouse our cause. But there are as yet, unfortunately, far too few of those who are able fully to comprehend the seriousness of what is at stake with regard to the evolution of humanity. On the one hand, there are those who do not want to forsake the comfortable ways of thought to which they have been accustomed for so long. But, on the other hand, there will have to be those who are willing to ward off that which is anyway doomed to perish. We must not believe that we should be prevented from acting by any leniency toward that which is anyway doomed to perish. Over the last five to six years, we have been able to learn how something belonging to olden times can be reduced to absurdity. And those who have not yet learned this will soon have ample opportunity to do so. Meanwhile, that which is new for human evolution must be fired up in us. So I was filled with a degree of satisfaction when a letter was presented to me the main content of which I shall communicate to you today. That same professor has once again made an appearance, this time at Reutlingen, near Stuttgart, in order to rant about what is intended by anthroposophical spiritual science, with all the same reasoning as that contained in his absurd pamphlet which I mentioned here recently. Well, no doubt that professor, one of the adornments of Tübingen University, for that is what adornments are like in that camp, and they are similar at other universities as well. That adornment of Tübingen University no doubt spoke in the same vein as he had written in his pamphlet. On this occasion he was faced down, a letter tells me, by our friend Dr. Walter Stein, with the true panache needed today, when one seriously takes into account what is at stake. The discussion which took place there a few days ago is described by our friend Dr. Stein in a letter to his wife. Quote, I was at Reutlingen yesterday where Professor Traub was speaking against Steiner. I took part in the discussion. It was a life-and-death battle. I presented Traub as an unscrupulous man, completely ignorant about the subject on which he was speaking. He was only able to stammer his final words. He was broken. The town pastor who had opened the meeting was completely trounced by me to the extent that when mention was made of the passage where Christ speaks of reincarnation, he said Christ is mistaken here. Imagine, the town pastor of Reutlingen. I rose and shouted, Listen, everybody, that's today's religion for you, a God who is mistaken. The audience went wild. Initially an attempt was made to interrupt me and prevent me from speaking. Somebody shouted, Keep to the point. 
There was shuffling and stamping, but I continued to speak quite calmly, pointing at Professor Traub, saying, Here's your authority. Well, I was the one who was applauded. I won. That man is finished. And I'm still half dead today. Close quote. It has, of course, been possible to foresee that powerful hatred would erupt against the anthroposophical spiritual science, which has been carrying on in Europe now for two decades. Anyone could foresee this who knew and knows how intimately linked this anthroposophical spiritual science is with the powers who are called upon to bring about the progress of humanity at the present time and in the near future. This anthroposophical spiritual science must not be confused by lethargy, by that attitude which likes the soul to luxuriate in spiritual ideas and concepts. And if Dr. Stein feels this is a matter of life and death, well, there is indeed something quite correct in this. We are at the beginning. The battle to destroy us has been joined. Insofar as we have understood the right impulse of our spiritual science, we have never made any moves toward aggression. But we may not avoid what must necessarily be done to counter the aggression which will increasingly assail us from without. We must not lose courage and we must not be lethargic. Bringing truth into human evolution will not be comfortable and we must certainly not gird ourselves with forbearance in certain matters. In fact, we appear to have achieved a good deal if the gentlemen who officially represent Christianity are stuck for an answer and are ready to say, Christ is mistaken here. The town pastor, of course, cannot be mistaken. If what the town pastor has to say disagrees with what the Bible says, then it is Christ who is in the wrong, not the town pastor. This is the attitude we now encounter everywhere. Only we don't want to see it because it is uncomfortable to see it. But this attitude is visible everywhere if only one were willing to notice it. Those, however, who clearly see the correlations in life know full well that the European misfortune of recent years, even though it might appear to have run its course externally, is intimately bound up with the way of thinking to which people have become accustomed as they gloat voluptuously over the great progress humanity is supposed to have made. What is now needed is that we should become inwardly realistic. But under the influence of recent culture, people have lost the capacity to be realistic. Everywhere it is one's personal wishes that count. If one day the history of the past five or six years is written, It will only be possible to do so on the basis of spiritual science. Those chapters of world history will have much to tell about what part the personal aspect played in the great events of world history. As I just said, it will be impossible to speak about the events of the past five to six years except on the basis of spiritual science. I need only mention something I have often said here of the 30 to 40 individuals who were in leading positions when they participated in what was termed the outbreak of the World War. Imprecise language is favored here because it helps to disguise the truth. It was neither an outbreak, for it was something quite different, nor was it a world war. 
for it was something different which will not be over for a long time. Of those thirty to forty individuals who were involved at the time, a large number were not fully alert. The forces of their souls and their spirits were not all there. And wherever consciousness is clouded, that is, where there are portals through which the Aramanic powers can find easy entry to the decisions and the will of human beings. The Aramanic powers played an essential role at the beginning of the events which took place in 1914. Even today, if one wished, one would already be able to discern entirely externally, on the basis of the facts, how necessary it is for spiritual knowledge to be involved in human evolution. But we are so very far in our thinking, in our feeling and in our will from taking such things seriously. On the one hand, there is the fact, and even more the coming fact, that the time is ripe for the arrival of individuals who are able to bring a fit and capable soul to bear on the spiritual impulses which have been breaking in upon our physical world since the final third of the nineteenth century. But in addition to our having entered into a materialistic age, there is also that other fact, namely that the portals leading from the spiritual world to our own world have been open since the final third of the nineteenth century, so that individuals who bring their open souls and their open consciousness to bear upon these spiritual impulses are able to have relationships with the spiritual world. Of course, the number is still small of those in whose consciousness the spiritual world already plays a part. But the fact is that the spiritual world does already enter into the soul and spirit of certain individuals. We can say that the next 10, 20, 30 years up to the middle of this century will be such that more and ever more human beings will have learned to listen quietly to their inner being in order to bring to this inner being the impulses of the spiritual world which want to enter there. Those who are already able to receive such impulses from the spiritual world, those who know about the truths and knowledge which must be allowed to enter into human evolution, these individuals know that if their ability for working through the science of initiation is not used to make fruitful what we call natural science or also what we call art, then humanity will find itself heading for a rapid decline, a dreadful deterioration. If the teaching at our universities continues as it is now for the next thirty years, if for another thirty years our thinking about social questions continues as before, then in thirty years' time Europe will be devastated. You can set up countless ideals in one field or another. You can rail till you are blue in the face about individual demands emanating from one group or another. You can say whatever you like about your belief that something must be done about the urgent needs of humanity for its future. But all this will be in vain if the transformation does not come out of the depths of human souls, out of the thoughts concerning the relationship of this world with the spiritual world. 
if we do not change our view, if we do not change what we think, then a moral deluge will engulf Europe. Readers aside, this is 1919, so 30 years, 1949. End of readers aside. We must come to realize what it would mean if a number of individuals, in comprehending the knowledge which lies beyond the threshold, were obliged to say, the confusion, the materialistic tendencies, the social errors will continue while human beings fail to rethink or relearn. What if those few who are in possession of initiation science have to look on while humanity continues to go downhill as a consequence of complacency in thinking and feeling? We should not delude ourselves as to the amount of reasons why such impulsions might arise in today's so-called civilized world. Many such impulsions hold sway now, for is it not actually more natural to expect today's humanity, in its arrogance, to reject whatever arises out of the science of initiation? Humanity is so infinitely clever in every one of its individuals. Humanity tends so strongly to deride whatever can be attained through working on the progress of one's own soul. Humanity thinks it knows everything without the need to learn anything. Neither natural nor social problems can be solved today without the enlivening of human thinking, feeling and will from out of the spiritual world. Yet many today consider it fantastical to talk of a science of initiation or of something which is described as being the threshold to the spiritual world. Of course, it is not yet possible for every individual to cross the threshold to the spiritual world. But surely it is not forbidden to recognize the truth of what is meant by those who are capable of crossing that threshold. People are wrong when they insist on saying from one point of view or another, why should I accept what somebody or other says about initiation science if I myself cannot look into the spiritual world? This is not right. Ordinary common sense, if it is not misled by today's erroneous natural or social ideas, is perfectly capable of making up its own mind as to whether there is truth in what someone is saying. When a person talks about spiritual worlds, one need only observe his manner of speaking, the seriousness which is brought to bear on what he is saying the logic of the description, and so on, and one can then form one's own judgment as to whether what he is saying about the spiritual world shows that he is a charlatan or whether it is founded on fact. This is something one can decide for oneself, and no one is prevented from making something bear fruit in natural and in social thinking if it has been brought forth from the source of spiritual life by those who are eligible to speak about the principle of of initiation. The powers of human evolution, which have been guiding the human being unawares to enable him to make progress, these powers are now exhausted and will be utterly exhausted around the middle of the century. New powers must therefore be called up out of the depths of souls. Human beings must come to accept that in the depths of their souls 
they are linked with the roots of spiritual life. Of course, not everyone is as yet capable of stepping across the threshold. Over the course of the past few centuries, human beings have become accustomed to experiencing whatever they encounter as taking place in time. But the first thing they will experience after crossing the threshold is that there is a realm in which time, as we know it, has no meaning. One must extricate oneself from one's idea of time. That is why it is so useful, as regards understanding the spiritual world, to begin by imagining things backward. Take a play at the theater, which outwardly begins with the first act and then proceeds to the fifth, and then imagine it backwards until you arrive at the beginning of the first act. Or, imagine and experience a piece of music, not as it is played, but backwards, note by note. Or, go through your day's experiences, not from morning to evening, but backwards from evening to morning. This is how we can seriously accustom our thinking to do away with time. In everyday life we are used to imagining events happening one after another, after the first comes the second, after the second the third, after the third the fourth, and so on. See plate 18. We always imagine that our thinking is a reproduction of external events. But now let us begin to imagine that we are thinking backward from the end to the beginning, that we are feeling backward from the end to the beginning. To do this, We need to exercise a degree of inner coercion, and this coercion is good because it coerces us to move out of the ordinary world of sense. Time runs from one, two, three, four, and so on in this direction. But if you think backward from evening to morning, we are thinking counter to time. We do away with time. If we are able to proceed in this way with our thinking, going as far backward over our life as we can manage, then we shall have made a great deal of progress. Those who are unable to step out of time are unable to enter the spiritual world. We describe how the human being is subdivided into the physical body, the ether body, the astral body, and the eye, see plate 19. Initially, only the physical body and the ether body come into consideration as regards the physical world, the sense-perceptible world. The ether body has some earthly relevance in time. The astral body can only be found if one steps outside time. The physical body exists in space. The I, capital, the true I, can only be found once one has stepped out of space. The world which is inhabited by the true I is devoid of space. So our first experiences are twofold, stepping out of time and stepping out of space as we cross the threshold to the spiritual world. I have often pointed out various aspects of what can lead to imagining the absence of space by drawing your attention to the dimensions, although not in the infantile manner of the spiritualists, who often talk of four-dimensional space and such like, but in a more serious manner. Consider how much you will have lost of the content of your consciousness once you are no longer in space and no longer in time. The whole of your life is adapted to space and time, 
as is also your soul life. You enter a world to which you are not adapted. And not being adapted to a world involves sensations of pain and suffering. So it is not possible to enter the spiritual world without overcoming pain and suffering. People are not aware of this. But the reason why they shy away from the spiritual world is because they do not want to enter a world which resembles an abyss in which there is neither space nor time. Now that I have thus placed before your spiritual eyes what is experienced on the other side of the threshold, you will realize vividly that there are few individuals nowadays who possess inwardly the strong courage with which to experience being without firm ground and without time. Nevertheless, there are some individuals whose destiny obliges them to step across the threshold. But without the wisdom which can come from beyond the threshold, it is not possible to proceed. This shows you what is necessary, namely that in future the mutual trust between human beings must be enhanced. This would be a social virtue, a fundamental social virtue. But in this day and age of social demands, this is a virtue which is rare. People demand that one should live for the community and yet they do not trust one another. The most unsocial instincts prevail in our age of social demands. For overall human progress, it will become necessary for human beings to grow into the spiritual world. It will become necessary to have confidence in the one who is justified in speaking about the science of initiation, not out of a blind trust, but on the basis of sound common sense. One can always accept what is brought across from the other side of the threshold if one truly endeavors to apply sound common sense. With sound common sense, we must always look, on the one hand, to the one who is justified in speaking, but then also to what we ourselves encounter. Not everyone, perhaps, speaks of Christ being mistaken, but there is something in the way such people speak which represents the prevailing logic in our life today. If someone comes along and says he cannot distinguish between what is brought over from the spiritual world with true inner logic and what is claimed by the university professors, then he is not applying sound common sense, or at least he does not have the will to apply sound common sense. Surely out of one's own sound common sense one must be able, when someone speaks of Christ being mistaken, to realize that one cannot count on that person in these matters. We have lost a true science of the soul. We have no such thing any longer. I have even mentioned in public lectures, quite recently, also in Basel and other places, why we have lost a true science of the soul. The Catholic Church, for example, became uneasy about the Spirit as long ago as the ninth century. That is why, as I have often pointed out, the Spirit was abolished during the Eighth Ecumenical Council of Constantinople in the year 869. The dogma promulgated at that time was that a true Christian should believe not that the human being consisted of body, soul, and spirit, but of body and soul only, whereby the soul had some spiritual characteristics. 
and the teachings of psychology today are still based on this. They merely repeat the dogma of A.D. 869. The confessing churches, too, monopolized the soul in their dogma. All knowledge about the soul was monopolized by the confessing congregations. True knowledge, free knowledge, was taken to belong only to nature. So it is not surprising that today we lack a science of the soul. Secular scholarship refers only to natural science, since knowledge of the soul has become monopolized and knowledge of the spirit has been abolished. There is no science of the soul. If we base what we have to say on today's foremost scientific thinking, we cannot progress any further. If we base what we have to say on the empty phrases of psychology, for that is chiefly what they are, we cannot reach a genuine understanding of what goes on in the soul. You know from my description entitled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds that when we step across the threshold into the spiritual world, thinking, feeling, and will separate. In today's normal consciousness, thinking, feeling, and will combine in a kind of chaos. They are intertwined. At the moment when one steps across the threshold to the spiritual world, at the moment when one intends to gain experience of initiation science, that is the moment when thinking, feeling, and will become autonomous powers within one's consciousness. They become autonomous. Then one gets to know them. Then one learns to distinguish thinking from feeling and from will. In particular, one learns to distinguish between thinking and will. The thinking which is at work within us, when we refrain from looking at its content but see it as a power, when we see thinking as a power within us, then this power of thinking is a kind of illumination of what we experienced in spiritual worlds before birth or before conception. And the being of will in us is something embryonic, something incipient, which will only be fully developed after our death. Thus we can say, if this, see plate 19, is the course of a human being's life between birth and death, then there is thinking during the course of life in the way it lives in the human being, merely as a semblance, for its true nature lies before birth or before conception, and the will is no more than a seed, for that which is to develop out of this seed only develops after death. Thinking and will are profoundly different within human nature. If someone now applies to this the logic of our present time, which likes to put everything tidily in its place and construct systems, then he might say, we were told today that thinking is the power which plays into existence from our life before birth and that will is the power which points toward the life after death. This would be a nice separating out of thinking and will by means of definition. But definitions do not serve our purpose. Some definitions, especially those which are supposed to be scientific, are very shrewd, but they all have a snag somewhere, like that in the example from ancient Greece in which the question is asked, what is the human being? The human being is a two-legged creature with no feathers. 
So next day a pupil brings a plucked cockerel and says, This is a human being, for it is a two-legged creature with no feathers. Well, things are not so simple that one can deal with them by means of the ordinary tools of our intellect. It is all very well to say what we experience as thinking has its true existence before birth, and what plays into us here is only something like a mirror image of thinking. This presents us with a certain problem, but you will be able to overcome it by exerting your thinking somewhat. Think of a mirror with an object in front of it, for example a candle, so that the mirror image is here. See plate 19. It is easy to differentiate between the two. You are not likely to mistake one for the other. And if you screen the candle with something, you will see only its mirror image. The image will do whatever the candle is doing. Whatever happens in the mirror image will show you exactly what the candle is doing. Since you are accustomed to thinking spatially, you will easily be able to imagine what the candle itself is doing. That which is within us, however, is the power of thought as a mirror image, and the reality lies before our birth. The actual power of which we have the image in our life lies before birth. Hence the axiom of human consciousness, I think, therefore I am not. Cogito ergo non sum. This is the fundamental principle we have to comprehend, that we think in images, whereas the power of thinking lies before birth. In recent times the opposite has been set up as the fundamental axiom of philosophy, cogito ergo sum, which is a nonsense. So you see how recent humanity is having to pass its test. But we are at the parting of the ways. It is up to us to learn how to think about the basic tenets of soul life. Having thus, in a way, arrived at the nature of thinking, we can now make similar claims with regard to will. Will is not like an image with a mirror image. In relation to its manifestation, between birth and death and what comes after death, will is like a seed with its fulfillment. The arrangement by means of which we have the image of thinking and the embryo of will is the only thing which makes it possible for us to be free between birth and death. You can read about this in my books titled Riddles of Man, titled Riddles of the Soul, and titled The Philosophy of Freedom where these things are also discussed philosophically. We now come to the specific point which will show you how inadequate ordinary everyday thinking is for a comprehension of reality. Having grasped the essence of thinking, we at the same time have to say, this thinking is no mere thinking, for it has within it also some power of will, Within that inner part of ourselves, which thinks, we also exercise will. Thinking is the main aspect, but it also has an undertone of will, just as our will has an undertone of thinking. There is something twofold in us, something which is mainly thinking, but with an undertone of will. 
bracket, in the drawing on page 180, will is written in brackets beside thinking, close brackets, and something which is mainly will but has an undertone of thinking, bracket beside the word will, thinking is added in brackets, close bracket. When you consider reality, you do not arrive at tidy concepts which can be packaged into systems. One aspect is always at the same time the other to a certain extent. Not until you penetrate these things fully will you arrive at an overall view of how the human being is connected with worlds which lie outside what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears, but which we nevertheless inhabit just as much as we do our world of senses. We cannot claim that worlds other than that of the senses are not relevant to us, for we exist in the midst of them. We must realize fully that as we walk about here on this earth, as we make our way through the sense-perceptible air, we are also at the same time going about in spiritual worlds. What I am saying is that affinities with the spiritual worlds appear when we look into these intricacies of human soul life. Through that which is more thinking, with only an undertone of will, we are linked with a certain aspect of the life of the spiritual worlds. And we are linked with a different aspect through that which is more will and less thinking. There is a profound significance in this. What we discover in this way expresses itself in human life, and the nuances which are present in the world derive from the way either one power or the other in human nature develops more in the one or more in the other direction. Those powers which are present in the will with an undertone of thinking were developed more prominently in ancient Hebrew culture, and those powers of human soul life based chiefly in thinking with an undertone of will were developed in what one terms the ancient heathen culture. Bracket to the drawing on page 180, the words heathen and old Hebrew are added. Close bracket. And now, in the present time, we have two streams running side by side. In the civilized world of the present time, we have, mingled with one another, one stream which is a continuation of ancient heathen times in our view of nature, and the other stream, which is a continuation of ancient Hebrew times in the social view of our present time, in our ethical and our religious concepts. This dualism is alive in the individual human being. On the one hand, he worships nature in a heathen manner, and on the other hand, apart from taking his habits of thought into the social sciences or sociology, his thoughts are concerned with the social, indeed the ethical life. And as he philosophizes, he says that in the one field he finds freedom and in the other the imperative of nature. And then he finds himself in an eerie region amidst freedom and natural imperatives between which there is no bridge, and so on. The bewilderment is immense. And this bewilderment is in many ways the content of life today, the content of life as it withers away. For what is it that our present life lacks? We have a view of nature, which is no more than a continuation of ancient heathen thinking, 
And we have a moral social view which is merely a continuation of the Old Testament. Christianity is an episode which was initially comprehended historically, but which has, meanwhile, trickled away through the sieve of culture. Strictly speaking, Christianity is not here. With regard to those who repeatedly speak of Christ, you can do as I recommended in connection with Harnack's title, What is Christianity? You can treat Adolf Harnack's What is Christianity? in such a way that you cross out Christ, wherever this is written, and substitute God the Father, or even perhaps some pantheistic God. And this will not alter his meaning at all. These are all the things which one must say today, for it is on the basis of such considerations that we have to recognize the content of our future consciousness. In a similar vein, Today's theory of evolution talks of the human being having evolved from lower forms of life, and so on, or of those lower forms of life having evolved upward and become human. Of course, if you consult my book, Occult Science and Outline, you will see that from a certain point of view we too have to say this. But the matter is such that we have to add the fact of the human head at present on our shoulders being once more in a process of decline. If our organism as a whole, please do understand what I am saying, if our organism as a whole were to have the same organization as our head, then we would constantly be involved in the process of dying, whereas actually we live through the way the vital forces present in the other parts of our organism are constantly being sent up to our head. The forces which in the end bring about our death are those which hold sway in our head. Our head is an entity which is constantly dying. It is in decline. That is why it is in our head that what belongs to the soul and spirit can be developed. If you make a diagram of the head, you have to imagine the upward development having already become a reverse development. There is an emptiness here. See plate 18. And it is into this emptiness, into what is constantly being destroyed, that soul and spirit enter. This is literally the case. Basically, we bear soul and spirit through our head because our head is already in the process of dying. We are constantly dying in our head. And the undertone of will, which is in our thinking, is what lies in our head. This undertone of will is a constant urge, a constant impetus toward dying, toward overcoming matter. When we then actually die, this will takes over. When our body is committed to the earth, that which has been taking place in our head from birth to death continues on, quite physically, in our whole body. You carry your head on your shoulders. In it, quite independently, the process, constantly refreshed and thus preventing what wants to rise up from the rest of the organism, takes place, which is then committed to the earth either through cremation or through decomposition. What you have within your skin between birth and death thus continues. 
it continues in the earth. According to the same principle as you think with your human head, the earth thinks too, because you are dissolving into it through your corpse having been buried in it. By passing through the portal of death, we bring into the physical earth, through our dissolving body, what we otherwise confiscate from it during our life between birth and death. This is a truth of natural science. And the human beings of the future must comprehend such truths. Today's natural science is infantile with regard to such things, for it never reaches the point of thinking about them or conducting research into them. And, conversely, the destructive element of what is in our head is the continuation of what was already present before birth or before conception. The destruction only begins once we are born and receive our head. Prior to that, it was not destruction. With this, we are definitely touching on an extraordinarily significant mystery of world existence. That which lives in our head, through which we enter into a relationship with other human beings and with external nature, is a continuation of what takes place in the spiritual worlds before we enter into the physical body. By gaining a thorough understanding of this, we arrive at being able to recognize how the forces from the spiritual worlds play into this physical world. This is most vivid when we examine these things concretely rather than abstractly. Here is an example. The figures are written on the board. Goethe died in 1832. The age belonging to the first generation after his death up to 1865 was not such that many forces played into it from his spirit. This is merely one example. Of course, the forces from other individuals also play into life. Until the year 1865, Someone paying attention to Goethe's soul would have noticed little of any forces playing in from there. But then, after the first thirty-three years, something from him does begin to enter from the spiritual world into our earthly development. This became ever stronger and stronger until the year 1898. If we then continue to follow this up beyond that time, we find that the first period in which Goethe's supersensible forces played into our earthly culture runs from 1865 to 1898. From 1865 there was nothing significant, but then it begins. After 33 years, we then arrive in 1931 at a further period. This would be the second, and in 1964 the third period would take place. So we can say that an individual such as this can teach us how, relatively soon after an individual has passed through the portal of death, the forces he then develops play into what is going on here on the earth. What we need to know is how this takes place. Someone who truly works spiritually knows how the forces of the spiritual worlds play into those with which he is working. I said the day before yesterday 
that the middle of our present century marks an important point in time. Observations such as those made in the example I have just given are the basis on which such observations can be made as to how forces from the spiritual worlds play into the physical world. The middle of our present century coincides with the end of the period in which what might be termed the atavistically remaining forces, which led up to the middle of the fifteenth century, will enter into their strongest decadence. Before the middle of this century, humanity will have to decide to turn toward the Spirit. Many people are still inclined to say, Why does misfortune come upon us? Why don't the gods help? Well, we are now in an epoch of human evolution in which the gods do help if human beings make an approach to them. But the gods are obliged, in accordance with their own laws, to work with free individuals and not with puppets. I have now reached the point I mentioned yesterday. If a knowledgeable person, even still in the times of ancient Greece, indeed in the times leading up to the middle of the 15th century, pointed to phenomena, to manifestations relevant to the birth and death of a human being, he was able to point to the world of the gods and how that world wove the destiny of the human being through birth and death. Today, however, one has to speak differently. Today one has to say that an individual's destiny is determined by his previous lives and by the manner in which through this he himself creates the forces in accordance with which the divine worlds can approach him. We must now learn to think in reverse as regards the relationship of the human being with the divine spiritual worlds. We must learn to seek in the human being himself the source from which the forces arise, through which one or another spiritual being can approach him. This is the important moment in earthly evolution, which we have now reached. What happens outwardly must now be understood as an expression of inner occurrences, which can only be comprehended through the insights of spiritual science. Every human being has today, I would say, the possibility of observing the final outcomes of events. More than enough human beings have been murdered over the past four to five years, at least ten to twelve million in the civilized world, and three to four times as many have been crippled for life in various countries. Such are the immense achievements of our civilization. But we shall gradually have to realize that these are the outcomes. The source, on the other hand, will have to be sought in what plays in human souls when they oppose what wants to enter from the spiritual world in order to uphold the human being in the future. It is from this point of view that all things must be viewed and deepened, profoundly deepened. Perhaps one should say that some of what has been happening could better be described from a different point of view. Broadly speaking, I shall now mention something which will bring this lecture to an up-to-date conclusion, especially since a number of our English friends have been present at all these three lectures, which has given us much pleasure. 
What I want to mention now is that one can speak today of victors and vanquished. It is an obvious point of view, but perhaps there is an even more important viewpoint, which might perhaps be drawn from the following. Here at this very place I once read out some observations by Fercher von Steinwand, that German-Austrian poet who, in the 1850s, had been speaking about the future of the German people. His lecture is the more remarkable for having been given in the presence of the then King of Saxony and his ministers. Those of you who were present when I read the passage will remember that Fecher von Steinwand was speaking in the 1850s about the German people being predestined to become in future something similar to what gypsies represented at that time. Fecher von Steinwand had been contemplating the evolution of humanity most profoundly. Such things can indeed be observed with full objectivity. And when one does observe such things with full objectivity, one may perhaps reach a view which differs from that more ordinarily held. One will ask, what is it that has changed with regard to the so-called vanquished and with regard to the so-called victors? Well, the actual victor is the Anglo-American being. And this Anglo-American being is predestined by the powers I have often described here to dominate the world in the future. One must ask whether this means that the German people will be excluded from experiencing the things by which the external world will be ruled in the future. What is actually going on? The responsibility for human events, not that of the individual, of course, but the responsibility of a nation, ceases to exist. The responsibility not of the individual but of the nation ceases to exist in the case of those who are downtrodden. And they are indeed downtrodden. They cannot regain their strength. All claims that are made in this matter are based on short-sightedness. The responsibility ceases to exist. So all the greater does the responsibility on the other side become. That is where the responsibility will lie. External dominance will be easily won. It will be won by means of forces which they themselves have not earned. Outwardly, the transfer of external dominance will come about with the force of an absolute necessity. But the responsibility will be profoundly significant for the souls. The question is already recorded in the Book of Human Destiny. Among those who come into possession of external dominance as though through external necessity, and do not be mistaken, it will indeed be a purely external dominance, will there be a sufficient number of individuals who can bring it about that into this purely external materialistic dominance, into this culmination of materialistic dominance, are planted the impulses needed for spiritual life? And this cannot be permitted to come about too slowly either. The middle of this century represents a highly significant point in time. One must be able to sense the full weight of this responsibility if one has been chosen, as it were, by external natural destiny to establish the dominance of materialism. 
and it will indeed be the dominance of materialism, in the outer earthly world. For it is only this dominance of materialism which carries within it the seed of destruction. The destruction has already commenced, and it will not cease. Becoming the bearer of external dominance at this time amounts to taking on and living within the forces of destruction, the forces of human sickness. That which human beings are going to carry over into the future is what will be born out of the new seed of the Spirit. It will be necessary to take great care of this, and responsibility for this will lie on the side of those to whom it falls to take on world domination. One must avoid not being serious about these things. One must consider them very thoroughly. One must not be seemingly spiritual while actually being materialistic. Two statements are heard very frequently. One is the way people say, What is the point of talking about social ideas? Ideas never get transformed into bread. This is a cheap objection, which is frequently heard nowadays. The other statement is, Once people can find work again, everything will be all right. The social question will look quite different. Both these objections amount to materialism in disguise. Both have the result of denying spiritual life. In what way are we different from the animal world? The animals set out to find food so long as there is some which fits in with their instincts. If there is insufficient, they starve. What advantage does the human being have? He works at producing food, and the moment he begins to work he also begins to think and when he thinks the social question arises. And if human beings are to work, they need incentives to work. The incentives which have hitherto existed will cease to exist in the future. New incentives are needed for work. It is wrong to state that everything will be all right once people have work. No, when people have thoughts which arise out of a sense of responsibility for the world which carries their soul, then the forces which arise from these thoughts will lead over into their hands and their will, and work will arise. Everything depends on the thought. And our thinking itself depends on how we open our hearts to the impulses of the spiritual world. One must today converse a great deal about responsibility and about the significance of the thought. That is why I wanted to draw attention to this nuance in today's lecture. Destiny being what it is, it turns out that one cannot set out on a journey whenever one wants to go. And so it has come about that we shall still be here tomorrow. I will therefore speak tomorrow at 8 o'clock specifically about the anthroposophical basis the spiritual and occult basis of the social question. The end of Lecture 11